I'm Duncan Jarvis and I'm at Evidence Live, a conference about the process of making, using and communicating medical evidence, jointly run by the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine at the University of Oxford and the BMJ. Now when we think about medical evidence, we think of RCTs, registries and meta-analyses. But these EBM tools have yet to filter into the basic science that underpins our clinical science. One person changing that is Emily Senna. She's a research fellow in clinical brain sciences at the University of Edinburgh, and one of the few people who's trying to meta-analyze animal studies. I took the chance at the conference to grab 15 minutes of her time. It seems like the pressures on life sciences researchers you know, uh, you having to publish, constantly drawing through money, things like that, mm -hmm. seem to be even more acute perhaps than they are for, for clinical ones. And we know what that does to the state of, of clinical evidence. So what are the problems that, uh, that you're seeing with, with life sciences research? Um, there's this emphasis on a big result. You know, it's you get your big effect size and then that's what's deemed anyway to be attractive to the journals, the high impact journals, and you get into that high impact journal, so then you put that in your funding application, in your academic promotion application, and that's what's driving forward this sense of big effects, um, big outcomes, but not really focusing on the quality and the validity. I just think that, I know, yeah, I showed a slide earlier, how many drugs are shown to work in our models. It's just not feasible mm. that everything works. Um, and I don't think that the focus should be on on this big effect size but actually the quality of what you do because knowing what doesn't work <laughs> is really useful so not you know um conducting clinical trials with thousands of patients on a drug when actually if you drill down onto the preclinical data there wasn't enough evidence to support taking it to the next step mm. so i think that should be you know that information is hugely valuable um so rigor rather than big effect sizes um, I think needs, but it's a cultural thing. It's a cultural thing in academia that it's the big effect sizes and discovering what does work is what's going to promote you. Yeah, and I mean, just talking about that, this sort of move from preclinical to to clinical, mm -hmm. you've described that there is a, a, a gap, you know, in in maybe the way things are um, set up, conducted, the outcomes that are, are measured. Mm -hmm. Are people really thinking about right? How will this work in the general population, you know, that this drug might ever end up in, or or is their focus so so tight on on what they're what, doing what that it doesn't even occur to them? Then yeah, I think there's a generalizability issue. It's getting it to work in your hands almost. And you know, I've been in laboratories where there's a certain surgeon who who in his hands this works, and if it only works in one surgeon's hand, then the idea that it's going to work in the general public. It's preposterous, you know. Yeah. It, it's not feasible. Um, so this kind of idea of over controlling and controlling for everything um, in a lab with these inbred strains, um, using one model, really tight um, experimental design conditions, I think is an issue when you're trying to develop something that you know we're a really heterogeneous, dirty population of people. Mm. You know, diseases are very um, heterogeneous, so. Um, there's a group in Switzerland who have really focused on this of introducing heterogeneity in animal 
designs. So if you show that drug X works in lots of different types of conditions, then I think you be, you believe they can withstand the test of humans. <laughs> mm. and, and talking about that sort of messy, dirty, smooshy data that um, that clinical science has to, to deal with, um, do you think, well, I think that that's led to, to more of a sort of thought process about, you know, what is our input in this? What is the human sort of activity in this? Um, I was a biochemistry undergrad and it was all about the sort of purity of the scientific method and we never really were taught anything about, you know, be aware of, of how humans are influencing this this philosophical kind of process. You mean in terms of the bias that as humans we bring into how we inter- do things and interpret it? And interpret it or, or you know, the, the, that money might have on the kind of things that you decide to yeah, do. You know, the, for many individuals this is their career (laughs) you know you might discover something in your PhD and then it's the basis of your fellowship and becoming a PI and your students and so you are you know that investment is huge you know at the end of the day we are we're scientists but we're also humans we have mortgages people have families and children and you know there's lots of different factors as human beings that I don't think it's conscious at all like I I don't think scientists are going out saying wake up in the morning saying, you know what I'm going to do today? <laughs> I'm, going to, I'm going to make this work no matter what um, because I need to pay my mortgage next month. I, it's, I think it's a very unconscious um, thing that you see this positive in what you're doing because the chances are it probably works anyway because you believe that it works anyway. So when you see something that appears to be working, you believe that it's working mm. rather than taking this approach of, okay, let's try and blinded and you know I don't know what the drug is I don't know what's who's getting what I don't know what's happened here and it's 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 a lot of work you know like it's easy for me to say you know you should blind your experiments and you should randomize them and you should power them and when I'm not in a laboratory but I have you know been in the laboratory and it is you need resources it needs additional people Um, I during my PhD um, we because I handled the animals early in the experiment I then couldn't handle them for the behavioral testing mm. um, and then there were situations where the person who was meant to come in and do the testing forgot or was late or and then animals were culled out of the experiment and then you lost data so you, there's a lot of control and I think that's a big factor in when you own something you know it's you own your project and so you do have to give up a bit of control and it's a lot more collaborative and there's more people involved and you don't know everything that's happening, which, you know, for some people is an issue. Mm. Well, when you're sort of talking about the, the cost of that, um, you know, your slide showed the number of animal studies on a particular thing like stroke. Mm-hmm. Um, lots and lots and lots of small, small studies. Um, is that down to, you know, the way that funding here works? That, you know, funders are funding lots and lots of small, small studies instead of thinking actually no let's let's properly design this empower this and you know yeah. group our resources together together yeah yeah so i actually lead a um a consortium called multipart which we're trying to um set up multi-center international 
randomised controlled animal studies. So just like you would do a phase three clinical trial, mm. but do that in animals. So you may have 10 labs across the world. You know, you have your protocol and you put something through in that environment. And then, if, like I say, if it can get through that rigorous testing, then I think, yeah, you know what, let's give it to humans. Um, but getting that funded is proving very <laughs> difficult. So we, we received funding from the European Commission to set up the infrastructure and to, so we've now have this infrastructure, you know, we've got a online system that allows you to input animals, randomize, um, do, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Kind of um, external testing, so you upload outcome screens, uh, mm. videos and things yeah. to measure um, for somebody else who hasn't done it. But it's, it's we don't have a structure really that will fund this apart from probably the European Commission, there's a few others. Um, but the problem is now that we're facing is how do you decide what you put into that? Because everyone's got their favorite <laughs> compound and they, but you can't, now everything hasn't reached that rigorous testing. So even that process of filtering needs funding. So it's not a single drug hypothesis driven, this is what we're gonna do from mm, the beginning. So mm. getting that kind of project funded is very, very difficult even though I think, so it's high risk, um, but I think the returns are so much more valuable than, you know, funding me in my lab by myself to do a small experiment with 10 animals in each group mm. that adds to the pile of these just high quality <laughs> studies. Yeah. I mean, talking about that, just seeing the number of studies that you have to deal with when you're trying to put together a systematic review on these things it's the incredible like how the hell do you actually do that <laughs> it's very time consuming um which is why and i mentioned this idea of um using tools like text mining and machine learning i think um collaborating with different scientific fields is something that i think we need to do more of so we happen to have our program and our group happens to have physics like a astrophysicist degree and she thought it was absolutely bonkers that we were sitting there screening thousands of manuscripts for inclusion and exclusion one by one by hand. Mm. She was like, why would you do that? Why would you not just let a machine do that for you? And as biomedical scientists, we had no idea that that was even an option. Um, so we're trying to develop new tools now to um, speed this process up so that the reviews that we do are up to date. Because if you do a, a search in 2010 and you get, and we have done this, get 30,000 hits that you then have to screen for mm. inclusion, um, by the time you've done that, got your thousand papers that are included, and it's, your, your data's out of date. So we do need much quicker, robust um, methods of speeding this process up. So obviously there was a movement in uh, clinical medicine to, to try and clean up you know, what was going on. Mm -hmm. um, and a big part of that was about reporting mm -hmm. trials properly. Mm -hmm. um, and that's led to lots of you know, endless almost um, reporting guidelines yeah. uh, and then that was taken up by the journals they mm. said we're not going to publish your study unless you have jumped through these hoops mm. of pre-trial registration you know following reporting guidelines um, reporting things like conflicts of interest uh, is that beginning to happen in life science publishing? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so I mentioned that Nature now, Nature Publishing Group have changed their policy. Um, there's guidelines called the ARRIVE guidelines, 
which are the kind of animal equivalent to consort, um, which are they're very comprehensive. <laughs> uh, there's many who feel that they're probably a bit too onerous, um, but they are now um, endorsed by lots of different journals. Um, who, but yeah, they're endorsed rather than mandated, which I think is a bit different to what's happened in clinical mm. um, in the clinical space. Um, their funders have said, you know, you should follow the ARRIVE guidelines. Lots of institutions have told their um, academics that you should follow the ARRIVE guidelines. So there's a, there's, people are aware of them. Um, they are, certain people are more engaged than others. We're running a randomised controlled trial of mandating reporting guidelines, mm. so of these ARRIVE guidelines. So working with a journal where the guidelines are so when an when a author submits their in vivo manuscript, you get randomised to either requesting that you fill these guideline checklist or not, and then um, the outcome is we're going to assess whether complying with these guidelines actually leads to better reporting. Um, because I think people believe in evidence, and if we yeah. can show that this and and maybe you know there'll be certain parts of it because it, it is there's lots of different sections to your guidelines, and there may be certain aspects of it that people that are improved in certain aspects that aren't. And I think that can then inform maybe the next iteration and what happens um, in the future. So I think, yeah, evidence will hopefully see improvements in reporting. And uh, finally, um, you're involved in this thing called the Camaradus yes. Initiative. Uh, tell us a bit about that and how people can find out more about the kind of work you're doing. Yeah, um, so we have a website, camaradis.info. Um, so it was established back in 2005 um, by a neurologist and a basic scientist, Malcolm McLeod and David Hales. Um, and the idea was that, so David worked in the lab with the animals and um, Malcolm was, as a neurologist was thinking about clinical trials and where to go. So it was stroke, so both were interested in stroke, about trying to decide to find to pick a winner essentially <laughs> what what drug should we invest in for the next step so then um as a neurologist he said well we know we do clin clinical trials as much reviews all the time why not why don't we apply this to animal data um and that's what they did but then it became quite qu apparent quite quickly that there were issues with the validity and the rigor and in these studies which has changed the direction of the work that we do in terms of um, really trying to improve the quality um, of animal research. And our group in Edinburgh, so what we do, there's five kind of coordinating camaraderie centres around the world. Mm -hmm. um, so there's David, who runs it in Tasmania, uh, in the Netherlands, um, a group called Circle, who are involved. Um, in Canada, in Ottawa, Mark Avey um, runs a coordinating centre. And in San Francisco, um, Tracy Woodruff also runs a coordinating centre and it's, it's a very kind of loose collaboration, it's a supportive environment there's no kind of rules or mandates um, there's people who come in who come for advice because they're interested in looking at their field of research and just looking at where the gaps are mm -hmm. um, some people who are interested in biological mechanisms and say where there's evidence for X or Y um, so it's not all about one thing that we're doing in Edinburgh I mean I focus on Edinburgh very much is about the quality and improving the rigour um, 
but you know we've covered so the s actually in camaraderies used to, at the end used to be for stroke and then we changed it to studies because we've been contacted by it's lucky that the two words <laughs> start with the same letter <laughs> um but yeah so the data i showed shows that we've done now have reviews in our database covering lots of different diseases from models of tuberculosis to mi to spinal cord injury um alzheimer's lung injury there's lots of different things that we're involved in but it's meant to be a supportive network of people um interested in using these tools applying them to animal research for a myriad of different reasons mm. you've been listening to emily senna talk about applying the lessons from clinical science to basic science for more from the program here at evidence live have a look at the conference website evidencelive.org <laughs>